Um, so one, for example, he analyzes the results of a DMT, of a series of DMT studies, and literally in a very scientific way, breaks down different qualities of prophetic states or different types of prophetic experiences, and then compares and contrasts them to his findings in the DMT studies that he conducted, which were DEA, FDA approved and, 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 and super hardcore according to you know, scientific standards. Yeah. Um, his current fascination now is with the medieval Jewish thinkers um, and their commentaries on, on the Torah. Okay, and, and that would be the perfect slice of time in which to study that. And, and of course, Europe being the right place as well. Um, wow, this is, this is so rich with opportunity. Um, so for folks at home who may not know this, there have been studies done on the effects on the human mind when taking some sort of psychedelic. The most well-known is the Good Friday experiment, where people were given a psychedelic and others were given a placebo, and they were in a church experience and being asked, you know, how to feel, what was it like? And across the board, the people who were given the psychedelic substances reported having profound, deep religious spiritual experiences, much akin to things described like in biblical accounts of people having their spiritual experiences, but, you know, the Bible doesn't mention they took something before that experience. So there seems to be a rising body of scientific evidence showing a connection between the effects of certain psychedelics on the human mind and the human mind's perception and, and understanding of religion and, and spiritual experience. So I'm wondering, and I don't mean to be trite about this in describing back to you what I think you just said about Dr. Strassman, is that it sounds like he's essentially going through the Talmud and trying to find evidence that it's somebody's trip journal or some people's, plurals, trip journal. Because um, that's what it sounds like to me. Is that unfair which or unkind? Right, right, which is not too different from... Brian Muroresco's journey, you know, within Christianity as well, right? So yeah. kind of looking back and saying, how can we, it's not about rereading history, but how can we read religious texts to maybe include the possibility that psychedelics or mind altering substances of different types were, um, were involved in not just spiritual experiences, but spiritual practices that were, that were considered at a time 
um, part of, of, a, of a religion or part of a phase that predated a religion that we now call X, right? But cultures don't end they kind of seep into each other. Yeah. So yes, I mean, that's, ex- you know, that's, that's an exploration. And I think that when I mentioned this idea of Jewish, of a Jewish psychedelic ecosystem and Jewish psychedelic um, philanthropy, I'm taking what you just said and basically positing the, the futurist question of yes. And what will that, future experience look like in a Jewish context. Mm. So the assumptions that my thinking is, is based on, is it probably important to share with, with your audience, which is my assumptions are that in a very near future, we will have um, psychedelic substances that are approved on a federal level for, um, and let me try to find the, the, the term carefully for, treatment and experiences treatment maybe we can put in a more medical category and experiences is the term that i would use for what you just described yeah um and so we've got you know permission to use substances in certain in certain situations in certain conditions and then i'm thinking okay what is the cultural and psychological preparation that goes into making that experience the best. So the conversation about set and setting that is always so important with psychedelics, how, what will that culturally related preparation be like if you are Jewish, Christian, Muslim, right? And then the experience itself, for example, um, ayahuasca ceremonies often have an aspect of music to them. Um, what would it be like to have a Jewish ceremony that draws on a very rich history of Jewish music of different types from Nigunim to contemporary Israeli music to like whatever, you know, whatever that, that means for that group. Um, And then the integration, right? So after the, the experience, um, how does this then tie back to, to the person's um, individual story, but also their 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 cultural um, story. So I think that that is um, that is the future, and those are the pre- those are the assumptions that I'm kind of juggling at the same time. Yeah, that that all sounds uh, spot on to me. Um, you know, I I think that American audiences in particular are going to have a much harder time grappling onto the concept of somebody taking a substance for a religious experience versus taking a substance to treat some sort of a mental or, or physical health condition. You know, most Americans are brought up to think you, you know, you ingest something when you're sick and you're trying to not be sick. Um, we just don't here in, in, in North America, unfortunately think about, Oh, I want to enhance my connection to the divine, whatever I define the divine as, and here's something I can take to help enhance that connection. That, That's interesting that, because American culture, I mean... And we're all about pills for everything, right? <laughs> that and, you know, as an outsider, insider, I, I, I can kind of see this, um, this overriding puritanical tone to American culture. So I think the, the, the puritanical legacies that we deal with oftentimes have to do with pleasure in food, pleasure in general, 
yeah. a difficult relationship with substances of, of you know, wine or, or other substances. And, and, and so I think that there's like an element of, of restraint and, and, and fear to the puritanical ethos yeah. that we still deal with in the United States, which when you're from another culture or you're in touch with other cultures that don't have that same, um, that same tone, um, maybe it's, 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 a, it's an easier conversation. So I think one of the things, for example, when people ask me um, about, you know, Jews and drugs, I, I joke that, you know, the best thing that ever happened to Shabbat was cannabis. And the best thing that ever happened <laughs> that should happen to Jews that enjoy cannabis is Shabbat, right? And so it's like, there's, there's this interesting potential exploration, again, of tradition um, and newness or rediscovering um, ancient practices that some people may have already discovered before. I don't think we're going to be the first one. I don't have the hubris of thinking that we are the first to combine an element of cannabis and Shabbat, but oh, you know, well, well, let me, let me pause you there for a moment. Cause there's a 3000 year old, uh, temple that was looked at and they found cannabis residue on the altar. And this right. is published in, in an Israeli archaeological journal called Tel Aviv. Uh, came out, I think, about a year ago. Uh, and it's been causing shockwaves because everybody had up until that time been theorizing, oh, yeah, cannabis was absolutely part of early Judaism, but nobody had the evidence until now. Until so. now. So it was like, I think it was on one, it was uh, it was cannabis and, and they did find THC. And then on the other one, it was frankincense. But, you, yeah. you know, we, we can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I absolutely know that the, the cannabis was found in, in and on that altar, so no question about it. I, I do also wonder about the whole acacia wood connection, because um, the Bible in particular has a lot of reference to acacia wood, and I know it does exist in that sort of Levant region of the world, um, but acacia is known for having high levels of naturally occurring dimethyltryptamine. And yeah, it could just be pure coincidence, but what a coincidence that one of the most potent hallucinogenic substances, which is quite naturally occurring, even, uh, you know, meat organisms like us produce it. Um, but to have the chosen plant in the Bible just coincidentally happen to be really high content dimethyltryptamine and also part of the, the, the wood to be used in the construction of things like the ark, just make it That's really... <laughs> Really, really, you want to be looking at that and saying, there's more to it. That can't just be coincidence. But I'm not an archaeologist. You're not an archaeologist. I'm not going to go dig out my Indiana Jones hat and go running around some jungle somewhere. Somebody's got to go do that. So uh, please, yeah. if you're listening at home and you're looking for a career, go be an archaeologist and solve this for us, would you? Or a, a chemo, what's the term that uh, Brian Moresco talked about in his book? It's the oh, like, yeah. chemi chemio and like there's a basically a combination of entheo chemo something 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 like that right yeah. so people that are able to analyze the chemistry of uh, archaeological finds to discover what liquids and foods were actually in a in a vessel and i think that's a fascinating uh point and yes i mean anyone who is a student of jewish texts knows that the um the understanding is that nothing is in a religious text as a mistake that there's always some intention or some secret to be unlocked yeah. for the use of a certain word or of a certain phrasing and so 
Um, yes. And this also gets back to this question of, you know, what does a Jew, what does a Jewish psychedelic ecosystem look like? Meaning what kind of people, what kind of interests are important to flesh out this, this ecosystem. And one of them is what you're touching upon, which is you need people out there that are asking these questions about the past while you've got people in rabbinical school, while you've got people that are studying harm reduction, while you've got people building retreat centers. Yeah. So I think that what you just brought up, which is, you know, you need the people that are passionate about archeology span and can continue to discover these, 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 these links um, working side by side and in communication with people who are, you know, proactively figuring out the texts and music to be used in an actual uh, ceremony. So it's not either or, it's all. And, and, and how are these things going to um, intersect with, with each other? And then there's also what you, what you mentioned earlier in your introduction about how Judaism is not monolithic. There's not just one version of it or interpretation or life of it. So this Jewish entheogenic or psychedelic future um, ecosystem has to also respond to different identities. So for example, um, I think one of the things that's really interesting and um, Dr. Rachel Yehuda uh, at NYU uh, talks about is, I think it's NYU, but we can check. But Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who's very interested in epigenetic studies, um, also will be working with uh, an FDA and DEA approved experiment, looks at epigenetic trauma in terms of Holocaust, not only survivors, but family members, so descendants. Um, so you could see a situation where you have a um, Jewish psychedelic experience, very tailored, very sensitive to the needs of second generation, third generation um, Holocaust family members and their their concerns and their and their needs. Um, and so, you know, you also can imagine a LGBTQIA focused, you know, situation where you can draw on the best vocabulary from 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 Jewish communities and gay well Jewish gay communities into a very special ceremony, and then you might have a future in which you have a Hasidic or neo Hasidic psychedelic um, you know experience, which might be you know gender divided with black mm -hmm. kosher food you know not taking place during Shabbat. So I can see a world in which many different Jewish subgroups have their needs met with a Jewish experience. Yeah. And let me, let me add a little paint to that wall for the, for the sake of our audience. Cause again, I'm very concerned that not a lot of people are going to know the nuance of Judaism. Um, so for folks listening at home, if you don't know this, there is a spectrum of, of, um, I guess I'll say orthodoxy. So, you know, there are, there are super Orthodox Jews and there are conservative Jews, there are reformed Jews, uh, and then, you know, all sorts of flavors in between. And at, at the high end of like super orthodoxy, they have certain beliefs and tenets that include separating the genders within um, certain functions and aspects of the community. So, for example, uh, during religious worship, the men and the women tend to be in separate sections of the of the shul or the temple or, or you know, altogether different rooms. Um, certain social gatherings tend to be single gender. 
Um, and it's not intended as any sort of mean-spirited thing or, or, or necessarily misogynistic or androgynistic, androgynistic. Um, but rather it's in, aimed at fulfilling certain religious tenets and doctrine. Um, but as you go down the spectrum of orthodoxy, those rules kind of relax and they're viewed a little differently and, and they're interpreted a little differently. So for example, uh, I, I was part of a temple when as far as being bar mitzvah and the temple I went to growing up, it was mixed. We, you know, it was um, fairly reform. Um, everybody was together. We had female cantors. Uh, I don't remember if we ever had a female rabbi, but I don't recall there being a rule forbidding it. And I know there are female rabbis now. Um, but if you go to like a very orthodox Hasidic community, you are not going to find a female rabbi. Um, what I have heard described is that women in an orthodox community are considered so vitally important to the community that they're exempted from going to some of these religious observances so that they can maintain households, etc. Now, I know you can look at that a lot of different ways and um, that there could be controversy on that. But there are religious doctrines behind why they do what they do, and people at home need to understand there are different flavors of this. And each community embraces its own ways, uh, and nobody's forced to do anything. You're, you're you know, welcome to join, welcome to leave, um, at least so far as I understand. So Right. In, in and it's important, and, it, and to piggyback, that it's important to um, emphasize that just because someone is Jewish doesn't mean that they would feel comfortable crossing some of those environments or being oh. in some of those environments. And so it's, you know, when we talk about, you, you know, it's diversity within, within the tribe is something important because sometimes people across religions have more in common than they do yeah. with, you know, with people within. But I'm curious if in any of your psychonaut travels, you ever had, um, an experience or a feeling that was, that was, that was Jewish and psychedelic or an experience where you're like, Oh, like, I wish I could have seen this earlier in my life. Or I don't know. I'm curious about your own, your own journey with like these topics that I'm, that I'm yeah. bringing up. Um, yeah. So that's complex. I don't have a really solid defined answer yet because I still don't understand my experiences, but I know I've had experiences and I, I know what they felt like. Um, I can tell you that in my early life, I never really felt anything spiritual, no connection. You know, I went through the motions because, you know, your parents raise you in your religion, so you don't get a choice in that. You're forced to go. And so for all the years until I was 13, you know, the ritual was get your butt up Saturday morning, get to Hebrew school, stay there, uh, or excuse me, Sunday morning, uh, get to Hebrew school, stay there. Um until, uh, you know, nightfall, uh, come, come back. And then during the week, uh, you know, you'd go to school during the day, you'd come home, uh, at the end of the school day and then off to Hebrew school two or three days a week for a few hours. Um, and that was forced on me much as it's forced on every child. So I grew up with sort of a tepid resentment over it. And maybe that built up in my mind, a wall of resistance to it. Uh, such that I just never felt connected. You know, I was getting the information, sure. They were telling me the fact of, sure, I was getting the fact, but not the feeling, not, and, and nor was I getting the why behind the what. And my personality, I have figured out in 51, almost 52 years now, I'm never satisfied with the what. I need to know the why. 
You can't just tell me do X. Go do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I know. I really need to understand it. It's not that I'm not going to do something or disagree with it, but I really need to understand it. I just don't like taking things at face value. So I kind of switched on spiritually much later in life, much later in life. And, and part of it was just through a meditation practice. Part of it was just through evolving as a human being. And yes, part of it was through uh, entheogenic experience. And without a doubt, um, the most profound was the entheogenic experience. And uh, I think, you know, much in the same way like Ponky's uh, uh, Good Friday experiment worked, I had something akin to that. Now, Emerging from those experiences, was I saying, ah, Judaism? No, I didn't emerge saying any religion. What I emerged from it with was, I kind of get this now. I don't know what this is, but I felt it. It was as tangible as the desk I'm sitting in front of. Uh, it wasn't, you know, the induction of a mental illness or a psychotic break. It was a profound, stirring, deep feeling. And it's been with me ever since. It never switched off. I can't tell you what it is. I just know that it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's so interesting hearing you talk about how you grew up because it was so different from how I grew up. Um, my Texan mother converted to Judaism before she got married to my father. Um, my father's Brazilian uh, Jewish family was what you would technically call uh, secular Zionist, meaning a very strong secular attachment to Israel and a very um, non-synagogue attending involved uh, life. Um, those terms I know are, are probably hard for people who are not, you know, steeped in Jewish thought to kind of understand, but basically it's a reality that's very a-religious and very critical of religion. Um, and then they, uh, soon early in my life joined a cult in Brazil that um, had kind of like this tiered setup kind of similar to Scientology, but it's not Scientology. And I was raised for a while kind of within that reality, but not involved in any of the tenants of that. So we had a house in a cult compound uh, on the that we went to on the weekends. And during the week, my parents would go to courses, but I, I was not involved in any of the, of the teachings. Um, and then they left and I just kind of continued being like one of the Jewish kids at school that was at school on Yom Kippur and like ate gefilte fish because my grandmother made it. But like, there was never really like any rhyme or reason or education. Well, in, in fairness to that, everybody eats gefilte fish only because of their grandmothers. Nobody would choose that if they didn't have to. Sorry. I going. mean, I say that Ashkenazi food was invented by anti-Semites because like, oh, who yeah. can, it, but it's the, but it's, it's the culinary uh, result of poverty. So we also have to remember that a lot of those solutions were, you know, solutions of people living in dire conditions in the East, you know, in the Eastern pale, but uh, we do uh, five, five words for you. Hamburger <laughs> of the fish world. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> who would think of that? Um, with horseradish. Um, <laughs> Which is the only part I like. Um. <laughs> the red one. I love I'll, it. I'll take either um, one. I don't care. I like horseradish. So, 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 you know, so I, I was not given that kind of education that you, that you described. And it was only later in my life that I had um, 
a situation where during my gap year before college, my grandfather said, well, I'll pay for you if you decide to include, to, I'll pay for you to go to Israel if you decide to include a segment in your gap year in Israel. And I was like, great. Um, I'd never been. And at this, and after that, ex, that short experience in Israel, washing cucumbers and cleaning tanks as a volunteer in the army when Saddam Hussein was throwing the Scud missiles over, I then had my first anti-Semitic experience in Italy with a Brazilian. And that just kind of started a whole question, which was if I am identified as being X and I am a part of Y tradition, what is this? And so I entered college with that question. Mm. And we are where we are today based on being the offspring of, of individuals, particularly my father was a, you know, a Buju before that had a name and sought spirituality elsewhere. And yet I was still born a Jew and a part of a tradition. So it's interesting that, you know, that your background is, is different from mine in terms of Jewish education and, and Jewish um, maybe communal participation. But what I think you bring up that I've been thinking a lot about is this recognition that I think different people need dis mysticism in different ways and in different doses and in different phases of their lives. And I think that there are some people that are perfectly happy living their lives without a significant mystical experience or mysticism being a part of their, of their, of their set point. I do think that there are many people in the world that need mysticism in some form and need it to be a part of their lives. And so it's those people that I wonder about. And it's those Jews that I wonder about um, seeking it elsewhere, right? Outside of, of, of Judaism. Sure. And so it's that recognition that different people might need mysticism that, that I'm, that I'm keeping on my, on my radar. And at the same time, recognizing that when 6 million Jews died in the Holocaust, we lost many individuals who were mystic leaders or mystic scholars or were repositories of Jewish mystical information. So we can criticize modern Judaism for being non-mystical or anti-mystical in many ways for many reasons, but I think it's important for us to take stock that some of that knowledge or a lot of that knowledge perished what would the diversity in our backyard look like today had we not had those losses? Oh yeah. Um, and that, and that continuum of, of, of transmission of knowledge, because a lot of mystical tradition and knowledge was not necessarily recorded or it was recorded and then trans transmitted with, with, with human accompaniment of, of knowledge. And so that's something that I'm also thinking about, which is, you know, that loss of, of information, that loss of continuity, I think is something that we have to think about when we criticize the different forms of Judaism that we have today. Yeah, I, I think you are absolutely bolstering the argument that a bunch of young people right now should be looking at careers in archaeology and linguistics. Seriously. I mean, what, if that's where you take it. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, here's why. Because I completely agree with what you just said. And as you're saying it, I am rolling around in my head all these parallels to this experience having happened before. And it will happen again, which sounds like I'm quoting Battlestar Galactica. Sorry, my nerd is showing. Um, but 
No, seriously, kidding aside, you, you look at like the, the Spanish invasion of Central and South America. The, the, the Catholic Church wiped out peyotism for the most right. part, drove it underground. Peyotism, uh, the use of hallucinogenic mushrooms, and even the, the use of uh, lysergic acid, LSA, which is the precursor to LSD, were diverse and widespread amongst the native populations in Central and South America well before the Spanish showed up. And when the Spanish showed up, they wanted to wrestle control. And one of the tools of their uh, control efforts was the eradication of the local religious practices, and that included the complete abolition of use of these substances. Um, I included in, in my book uh, at the very beginning one of the edicts. Um, the Inquisition. Yeah, of the Inquisition, in order to just get that in people's minds. So that is an example that we've seen before of exactly this, and this is possibly what also happened to early Judaism, is much like um, you know the, the ancient Aztecs uh, and, and the Olmecs did, uh, it was an oral tradition of, of what plants to use, where to find them, how to prepare them, how to administer them, what rituals to apply uh, in dealing with the population. And when the people who bear that oral tradition are no longer there, that knowledge goes with them. And we saw that repeat in Europe as well. Uh, the Romans stamped out the, the, the Dionysian cults and uh, the other earlier cults that were all based in part on this embrace of an entheogenic substance as an um, instrument of worship. And again, like I'll circle back to Eleusis, you know, the temple was run by women, and the knowledge was imbued in the women who ran that temple, and they knew whatever that concoction of Kaikian was, and still there's some debate over that, uh, but they knew what it was, they knew how to prepare it, they knew how to administer it, and people from all over the Greek world for 2,000 years came to see these ladies for that specific purpose. But, you know, the Romans got upset about it and, and wiped it out, and it's gone. So now, you know, you got people like Murarescu digging through whatever archive remains in order to recreate what was lost. You know, it's, right. and it's not terribly unlike, uh, you know, your, your computer crashing. If the hard drive loses data forever, well, you can piece together what's left, but you're not going to get the complete picture, but it's a place from which to start. So my extremely long-winded way of agreeing with you that, yes, modern Judaism's lack of entheogenic knowledge does not mean its absence. It may just be a memory we've forgotten. Yes, and um, it's interesting because, you know, tying this conversation about, you know, having grown up with a, a cult experience in my background combined with my realization that um, I am not necessarily a, a deep mystical seeker as a, as a in, in comparison to others that I have met, I am not high on the mystical thirst. I'm much more of an analytical, um, excitable person. Um, however, that, you know, it's the first time I've ever had to like describe myself as, as these things. But um, I think that one of the things that I worry about is um, when people are seekers, 
there are people that often will take advantage of their, of their curiosity and their open-heartedness. And so one of the things that worries me this is, is... This is your cult sensitivity coming out, by the way. And I agree with you. What? Keep going. Right. So it's, it's, it's like, you know, if someone were to peg me... question about psychedelics and the law, you're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.